0: Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org.
1: You can't be one of, you know, a Democrat that says, oh, that's rural America, we're gonna write that off. They're just gonna vote Republican. You don't do that. You go in, even if it's uncomfortable, you go in and you show up and you listen to people.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. A quick note before we dive into the episode. Sherry and I recorded this conversation about two months ago. And at the end of the interview, she takes a moment to pay tribute to Congressman John Lewis. When we spoke, he had passed away just a few days before. My guest today, Congresswoman Sherry Bustos, is the chair of the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which is working to elect other Democrats to the House of Representatives. She's been called the future of the Democratic Party, one of the only Democrats representing Illinois from outside Chicagoland. In 2016, she won her district by more than 20 points, a district that voted for Donald Trump. Sherry, welcome to Burn the Boats. It's great to have you. you. Thank you, Ken. I'm glad to be with you. I wanted to start by asking you about that margin. How did you pull it off?
1: Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, so I'm going to explain my district a little bit just for perspective. In the state of Illinois, there are 18 congressional districts. Of those 18, we have 13 Democrats and five Republicans. And then of the 13 Democrats, 12 are in Chicagoland, and I would be the 13th. So when you said I'm one of the only— Members of the Illinois I am the, <laughs> the only. I hope not for long. I hope uh, there's a woman named Betsy Dirksen Lonergan running in central Illinois, and I'm hoping she wins in, in November. So that's for a little perspective, just to understand that. So the district I serve starts in central Illinois, covers the entire northwest corner of the state. And it's 14 counties, 7,000 square miles, 711,000 people. A lot of farm country, we have 9,600 family farms, a lot of manufacturing, we're the world headquarters for John Deere. So any of the combines that you see out there in the farm country, those were made literally right down the street from where I live. So it is not exactly fertile territory for, for a lot of Democrats. Mm-hmm. But to your question, Ken, I, I think as much as anything, it is about using proportionately what God gave us, uh, two ears and one mouth listening and doing something with what we learn from people. So we do everything from what we call supermarket Saturdays where I just talk to people at the grocery stores. This was pre-pandemic, obviously. We do something called Sherry on Shift where I job shadow people. I've done a hundred of those. Uh, we do something where we take books to uh, small town libraries and it's a really good way just to get people together in a civilized manner. It's, it's interesting. If you go to libraries, people are, they don't like to yell or scream or anything. So, so it's a good way to get to know people, but just those kinds of things, listening to people and then doing something with what I learn, And that's probably a long answer after I told you, I like to listen <laughs> as much as I like to talk. But, um, that's kind of what I would say, how I've learned from people. I've lived in the congressional district that I serve for 35 years. We've raised our three sons there. My husband's the sheriff of our county. And, you know, I mean, I I would say that would be what has led to my last election, which was a 24 point margin in a district that Donald Trump won.
0: I've been tracking my Sherry Bustos news alerts in preparation for this interview. And There's a common thread that the striking thing about the way you are covered is just how very local every story seems. You're covered for your advocacy, for health insurance, for ag projects, for infrastructure, for locks and dams and flood mitigation. It's never for getting into a shouting match on the Capitol steps. It's never for the kind of flashy conflict that dominates so much coverage of Congress today. Is that intentional or just a a byproduct of your approach to politics?
1: No, it's very intentional and and it's where my passions are. I've lived in Illinois my entire life, other than going away to to college. I come from a long line of farmers. My grandfather was a hog farmer, uncle hog farmer, other uncle dairy farmers. So those are our roots on my husband's side of the family. His father, a World War II veteran, had an eighth grade education, was born dirt poor, literally born inside of a boxcar. I mean, if you think about that, and the only way that he was able to support his wife and his four children was because he was a, a union member with the UAW, the United Auto Workers, and he built those combines that I talked about earlier. You know, so those are our roots. And I just think, you know, we are called representatives for a reason, because we are elected to represent the people and, you know, whether you're a mayor or a city council member or member of Congress, you represent those who elect you to serve. So you won't see, Ken, a lot of viral moments um, out of what I do. <laughs> give I us just one. <laughs> one uh, well, I'll I, hear. I'll give you one, which is so bizarre. When I was first elected, I think it was the very first State of the Union that I went to. And I have a group of close girlfriends who are other members of Congress from all over the country. We all wore pink suits to the State of the Union. And I can't even remember if we planned it or if it's just what we ended up wearing. And somebody shot a picture of us and posted it, and it went viral. We got called the Pink Ladies. And, you know, so something so benign. And and it just struck me at that moment. I'm a former journalist, I was a journalist for 17 years of my career. And I just thought, you know, of things that I've done, like whether it was in my campaign or early legislation that I sponsored, nothing really took hold like a group of six women members of Congress wearing a pink suit. So that just shows you to some degree the shallowness of what's out there. But, you know, I don't seek to get viral moments. I I really want to make sure that I am doing right by the people that I serve. That is my primary goal.
0: I did not see that picture of the congresswoman in pink, but I wouldn't be surprised if it in some way wasn't a reactionary reflex to the wave of women now making their way into Congress and representing their districts. And you've commented about that at length, and I would love your thoughts on the different sensibility that women bring to the job. The focus on dialogue and coalition building and a a different style of leadership And I'll contextualize this comment by pointing out that today, over 62 percent of Democrats in Congress are minorities and women. And for Republicans, that figure is below 10 percent and still falling.
1: Wow. You know what, Ken? I had not heard those numbers in, in those terms. That's remarkable. You know, I'm the mom of three sons and I've been married for 34 years so this isn't by any means they've run the world for centuries. You know women being in positions of power is historically relatively new. And I think I think we're off to a really good start but I'll give you one anecdotal story about how women view things differently than men. I am on what's called the Congressional Women's Softball Team. I was a college athlete. I did not play college softball. I played college basketball and volleyball. I wasn't Division I quality, but I was good enough to play at a Division Three school. And I love sports. And so I joined the Congressional Women's Softball Team as soon as I was elected. And um, I'm the shortstop on the team. Just for the record, I typically bat third or fourth in the order. But uh, the reason I'm bringing this up in context about how women do things, there's also a Congressional Men's Baseball Team. Now, I'm going to tell you the difference between these two teams. The men, and that game's been around for 100 years. Ours has only been around for a dozen or so. But, but the men, they structure their teams this way. It's Democrats against Republicans, all right? And that's how it's been structured for a long time. So this is big competition. So the teams, they practice as Democrats only or Republicans only. And then they, you know, they practice and they play this one game. And it's all for fun and it's for charity, So look at the women's team now. Our team is made up of Democrats and Republicans, House members and senators. We practice at seven o'clock in the morning, two to three mornings a week for months for one game. (laughs) (laughs) And our opponent is the Women's Washington Press Corps. Now, the reason I share that with you is because we structure things where we can work together. You know, we take pride in the fact that on first base is Martha Roby from Alabama. On second base is Debbie Wasserman Schultz from Florida, a Democrat. And I'm the shortstop, a Democrat from Illinois. Third base is Senator Shelley Moore Capito, Republican from West Virginia. Pitching is Kirsten Gillibrand, a Democrat Senator from New York. Catching is Joni Ernst, Republican Senator from Iowa. So my point is that when you're practicing at seven o'clock in the morning, two to three mornings a week for months, You get to know about people's families, about what excites them, what they're working on legislatively, what they do in their spare time, and you just get to know people as human beings as opposed to just they are the other party and they are the enemy. But the way the men's is set up, you know, they don't even structure it so they can work together in sports. So I think that says a lot about women in our way of building relationships and governing versus how, you know, maybe more historically men have approached it.
0: There used to be so many more avenues for that kind of interaction between sides. And it seems like we're down to softball (laughs) and (laughs) and to a lesser degree baseball. But, you know, you read about the House and, and the Senate of 20 and 30 years ago, and there were bipartisan dining clubs. Certainly, we lost something when we did away with those institutions and those mechanisms for forcing Democrats and Republicans to interact. Seth Moulton once told me the place in Washington where the most work actually happens is the House gym because it's where members are forced to interact.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and, I mean, you really do have to look for those opportunities. When I was first elected, and I can look back at this and think, well, maybe I was even naive to think it. I I hate to say that, but I called or sent emails or sat down with every new member of my congressional class, Democrat and Republican. Okay, let's first get to know each other before we're sworn in. And my hope was really to build those relationships early on. And I remember also early on reaching out to Republican women on various legislative opportunities to see if we could co-sponsor some things. And it was much more of a struggle than I had anticipated. You know, that that's not healthy. I'm told, and, and I wasn't in Washington then, but when Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House, that that was really where things changed. He encouraged his Republican members under his leadership not to build those relationships because his goal was to go after those Democrats. And, hang on to the majority and grow the majority and and all of that. But, you know, the side effects of that kind of direction, I think, has really hurt our democracy, actually. I hope for better days ahead.
0: Do you think that's a possibility, given just how damaging the last decade plus of scorched earth politics has been? I mean, it's not as if we have a foundation left to build on. What happens the morning after the November 3rd election, and I'm, I'm not taking it on faith that Donald Trump will be removed from office, but should he be, how do you begin rebuilding that trust between two sides that have been at each other's throats?
1: Here's why I have hope for it. But it's going to take work. It's not—hope alone will not do it. But we currently have 30 Democrats— serving in Congress from Trump districts. So in other words, people went to the polls in those congressional districts, voted for Donald Trump, and then when they went down ballot, voted for the Democrat. So 30 of those. I think we are going to have even more after the November 3rd election. The reason I'm bringing that up is because if you're a Democrat and you come from a Trump district, like I do, and probably all 30 of those now serving would say the same thing. You have to show the people that you are serving that you want to work across the aisle, that you have friends on the other side of the aisle, because they do not tolerate anything other than that. They don't want their member of Congress to be far, far, far one way or another. They want to see you working together. That is viewed as something that is positive. So that's number one. Number two, and I do think Joe Biden going to win, and I think he is a remarkable remarkable public servant who has always taken pride in having friends on the other side of the aisle. Now, he got beat up for that a little bit in the one of the debates or a statement that he had made early on, but I think that's a good thing, and I'm proud to be supporting him. You know, Joe Biden, is a he's a healer, and I believe that he will help heal this nation. He's a kind man, and I think we're going to have the right members of the U.S. House of Representatives who will be elected. You know, so that is why, can I have hope that things will get better after this election.
0: Like Joe Biden, you have also taken your share of incoming for your efforts to reach out to Trump voters, uh, to understand them, to empathize. And that speaks to a real tension within the party today between those like you who are making that appeal and those who fear it will dilute or water down the ambitions of progressives to affect real systemic change. How do you answer that charge?
1: Well, I think, again, it gets back to listening. It gets back to understanding the people you serve in the district. So after Donald Trump won, and it was such a surprise to so many people, I decided to figure out what happened at a deeper level, focusing on the Midwest. I mean, rural America is is where I'm strongest. So I partnered with a political science professor who lives in my congressional district, a guy named Robin Johnson, teaches at Monmouth College. We interviewed Democrats who were successful in very Republican areas in eight states in the Midwest, with the idea being, how were they successful when all around them, those areas were trending more Republican? What we learned from that is that kind of to the point we made earlier, you show up, you can't be one of, you know, a Democrat that says, oh, that's rural America, we're going to write that off. They're just going to vote Republican. You don't do that. You go in, even if it's uncomfortable, you go in and you show up and you listen to people. And what you realize is that when you talk to people, whether they voted for Donald Trump, or whether they've been moderate Republicans or whatever their background, but you figure out there is a heck of a lot more that unites people than divides people. Healthcare is a uniter from a personal perspective, not politically, but whether you're poor or rich or young or old, healthcare is a high priority. And we frankly have become, Democrats have become the party of healthcare. You know, I try very hard not to get defensive you know, if somebody's going after me, you listen. I don't, I don't like rudeness. I don't want people, you know, getting in my face and yelling at me because I don't think I deserve that either. But, you know, you got to have thick skin in this line of work. But in the end, there's just so much. And, and Ken, you know this, too. When you were out and about running for your seat in Congress and you were a remarkable candidate I, coming out and spending time with you, you did exactly what we talk about in this report that we called Hope from the Heartland. You know, sometimes Democrats run in districts that just it's nearly impossible to win. But, um, you know, I think if you do all the things that we talk about over time, I think that's the, the secret to political success.
0: A news story gets shared by a friend on social media or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune into Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. After that 2016 election in which you prevailed by a massive margin in a district that Trump won. Politico called you the secret weapon Democrats don't know how to use. You're now the chair of the DCCC. Clearly, the weapon Sherry Bustos is finally being deployed. How are you bringing your experience to bear on that job, which again is a coalition building job and you're in a distinct minority? There may be 30 Dems from Trump districts, but it's only 30 and a caucus of many, many more. How have you prevailed upon your colleagues to take your approach seriously?
1: I like to use the phrase, um, if you are either running for office or you are running for re-election, I always say run like you're the mayor. And what I mean by that is all things are local. When I served on a city council, I, one of my more vivid memories is of a neighbor marching down the street in front of my house and I'm outside doing some yard work and she's waving her water bill at me saying you better do something about this or I'm going to go to the press <laughs> <laughs> or the uh the assistant at a law firm asking what I was going to do about the weed growing in the crack of the sidewalk you know I mean it's like nothing was too small or too minor when you're on the city council or for that matter when you're the mayor and so what I mean by that is You've got to know your district just like it's your town. You've got to know the people in it and, you know, the idiosyncrasies of different people, of different groups, of different neighborhoods. And you've got to show up. That is the term I use, run like you're running for mayor or like you are the mayor. And it gets back to, I told you earlier, I was a journalist for 17 years of my career I followed in the footsteps of my father, who wrote a -a five-day-a-week political column for the local paper back in the day before he himself went on to be a deputy press secretary and a chief of staff for various offices of public service. But my dad used to say in journalism, and this applies to politics, he would always say, you localize dog poop. But he would not say poop. (laughs) Um, and, And as weird as that sounds, what he meant is that you find the local angle to everything, no matter how small or insignificant it may be. And you always did that as a journalist. If there was something that was happening in the Middle East, who in your community had come from the Middle East who could talk about what it was like when they were there? And that applies so well to politics. You know, I'm on the Appropriations Committee, but what is the local project that I need to fight for as part of a bigger bill in Appropriations? When I told you before, Ken, that I don't, I'm not looking for viral moments. I'm looking for successes that I can take home and help the communities that I serve.
0: That's obviously a personal reflection, but is it a larger critique? Do you think politics, and in particular the politics of the House, has become too performative?
1: You know, social media doesn't always do us favors. This was very controversial, but there was a columnist at the New York Times who resigned and in a scathing letter wrote that Twitter had become the editor of the New York Times. I make a practice of, I don't look at comments on social media as a way of living my life. I stopped doing that in 2011, okay? So for for nine years now, I don't pay attention to whether something is like, you know, really positive, you know, we're getting a lot of good buzz, or whether something is really negative, because I just don't think that's healthy. And so I just think that in politics, and even in public service, social media has played a role in, I guess, playing to the camera, that I don't think is very healthy. So I don't know if that answers your question well enough, but that's just kind of what came to my mind when you asked
0: that. It does. It begs a follow on, though, which is other than disciplining oneself to not pay attention to those kinds of things. Is there a a systemic fix? I mean, is there a way, for example, to identify Twitter users who opt in by their congressional district? I mean, how do you know who to listen to and what to tune out? Because part of the job is listening, right? Well,
1: yeah, it, it is. We have a very robust legislative correspondence department. And it does matter if somebody is contacting us from within our congressional district. I mean, we have a whopping 711,000 people. So there's plenty of people to go around in our congressional district for us to listen to. So when somebody calls us, writes a letter to us, communicates in social media, we want to know where they're coming from. And it it matters a lot as to whether they are coming from one of the 14 counties or the 150 towns in the congressional district that I serve, or if they're coming from, you know, across the country in Wyoming. But the answer, Ken, I think is very, very complicated. You've got to be very thick skinned in this line of work. And I think it actually, there's a lot of people who would be great public servants, who would be wonderful members of Congress or mayors or, school board members or whatever that just don't want to go through the political process. And, and that's really a shame. Your life is out there for everybody to see, to scrutinize, to criticize. But it was my husband back in 2011 when I would read every comment to everything and I would, <laughs> I would say, gosh, I can't believe this person said this about me or, you know, I can't, this is just so untrue. And he finally, after listening to me for a while, said, by you reading that, does that make you a better person? Does that help you feel better? And you know when when he put it that starkly I'm like, "No, it's not." He said, "Well, stop reading it." And I said, "Well, I've got to know what people think. I've got to know what people are saying." And he said, "You have your team to do that." You know, I had a political team at that point, and now we have a congressional team and a political team. And he's right. If there's something that needs to be elevated to my level in a reasonable way, then I'm going to know about it. But literally s- sitting in front of your smartphone or your iPad or anything else and just reading so much negativity is just it's, it's not healthy. So I think I have a healthy um, self-awareness and self-respect and self-confidence and that I do not want to compromise no matter what I'm doing in life. I just I don't want to compromise that.
0: You have said that you consider the Democratic majority in the House to be a fragile majority. Do you still hold that? view? Do you perceive a seismic cultural shift underway that might cement it for much longer than majorities have existed in the past? Or as chair of the D-Trip, do you operate by Sherrod Brown's maxim, you're either running scared or running unopposed?
1: I believe what Sherrod said. I think that's how you should run every race, no matter what. And I can tell you the race that I won by 20 points in 2016, in the race I won by 24 points in 2018, again, in a swing district that Donald Trump ended up winning. I, we worked very, very hard. We had a team, and so I, I do believe that. Um, here's the reason I call it a fragile majority. We as House Democrats, we only have a 15, one-five seat majority. That had been 17, by the way, but uh, one Democrat switched and became a Republican in the last several months and another Democrat resigned, and then um, we did not hang on to that seat. We only have a 15-seat majority. So that's one number to look at. And then again, back to the number we talked about earlier, Ken, we have 30 Democrats from districts that Donald Trump won. He's at the top of the ticket on November 3rd. We have some Democrats who are in very, very, very tough districts who are wonderful members of Congress but they have fights ahead of them in this race. So they're in the middle of fights right now. So to hang on those seats, everything has to go right. We know we've got the right candidates and the right members in these districts. They will have the resources they need to get their messaging out, especially when you're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic and we're gonna have vote by mail. It's like all of that coming together to hang on to this House majority. And my hope is that we grow the House majority and you know, make some wonderful things happen for our country and heal the massive divisions that have really grown wide over the last you know, three and a half years. I'm hoping that post November 3rd and if the political landscape looks different, that we fix some of what's broken and that we just really focus on making our country a better place. If we do that, in a reasonable way that we bring people along instead of alienating people, then I think that's how you solidify the Democratic Party. I'm from the land of Lincoln and grew up in Springfield, Illinois, several miles from Lincoln's home. And Abraham Lincoln had a saying that uh, public sentiment is everything. With it, you can do almost anything. Without it, you can accomplish almost nothing. And so I think it will be critically important that as the political landscape changes, And as Democrats gain strength, and I think we will, hope we will, but that we bring people along. And I just, I think that's very, very important. It takes a lot of work, a lot of communications, but I think that's the way to success.
0: In a electoral system, though, that is so vulnerable to outside influence, to attempts by the president to discredit the integrity of elections. Is public sentiment really everything? I mean, we've had two elections in my lifetime now where public sentiment did not carry the day when it came to the outcome of a presidential election. What are the biggest threats to the democracy that you're perceiving in the run-up to the November 3rd election? Is the DCCC focusing on any particular issues?
1: It's got to be engaging voters we have way too many people who sit out elections. We have to excite people. And I don't mean by being, you know, provocative at every level, but it, taking the time to in schools talk about the importance of civic engagement. We've got people out marching now and I think we have to look at that in a way that people are interested in in making changes, especially as it pertains to social justice. Um, Making sure that no matter who you are, where you're born, what color your skin is, whatever your income level is, that people have a shot at succeeding. And, you know, that's always been the hope of Americans, right? The old American dream. We've got to make sure that people feel that again and we get the levels of participation up. We will have a plan to register new voters, to engage people. We're having to do this virtually we have built from the ground up at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee what we call the Virtual Action Center to engage people from the comfort of their homes, but to bring people in. And we've got to get that right. Right now, more than 750,000 voters have engaged through our Virtual Action Center and what we call peer-to-peer texting. We had 22,000 people sign up for congressional campaigns all over the country. So, We're trying to figure out a way, how do we reach people where they are in the middle of a worldwide pandemic where I don't believe that our country can live through and hang on to this democracy that is so precious. I don't think we can afford to do that under Donald Trump's leadership for another four years. I think that's this election is that important. And uh, Joe Biden, I think, is the antidote to getting our country back on the right path. We just have to get enough people engaged to bring about some meaningful and some lasting change in our country.
0: Do you think those efforts are going to be enough to overcome the overt voter suppression and intimidation that we are seeing day after day?
1: We partnered with our sister committee called the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, and also with state parties all over the country in investing $10 million in lawsuits in about half of our states where there have been overt steps to get in the way of people's right to vote. And I mean, it's everything from in the state of South Carolina, where in order to register to vote, you had to give someone your full social security number. We changed that through the court system. So you only have to give your last four digits or in the state of Michigan, where if you're a college student you have roadblocks set up to be able to vote at college. You know, when you think about it, like pre-pandemic, you were in college and you were not allowed to vote from your college address. So lawsuits like that to ballot order, there's as much as a five-point advantage to the person whose name is on top of the ballot, you know, the first name listed. And yet in several states, the Republicans always had their names first, including in Florida, election after election after election. It was always the Republican's name who was listed first. So we filed suit on that and and we won that. So just things like that, that if you're an average everyday voter, you don't give it a whole lot of thought. But we know that these were things that were uh, set up to benefit a certain party or get in the way of people's voting rights.
0: Well, thank you so much, Sherry, for coming on the show. We end every episode of Burn the Boats with the same question. What is the bravest decision that you've ever been a part of?
1: Actually, it was less than a a week ago that uh, Congressman John Lewis died. I'm going to turn this to him. And um, for your listeners, I think probably most know who John Lewis was, but he was a, a civil rights leader. He was one of the leaders marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the Selma to Montgomery march, where after they crossed the bridge, faced a line of police officers with batons and John Lewis was beaten, thought he was gonna die. And that was back when he was a very young man, but he spent his entire life making difficult decisions in service of others, whether he was, you know, walked toward personal danger Um, If he knew that it was the right and the moral thing to do, he did it. I never saw him rude to anyone. He was kind to everyone. And so many people wanted something from him, you know, whether it was a picture or to go to their congressional district and speak or speak at a commencement or whatever. And he treated everybody with every request with kindness. But um, just as a closing thought, we were on a call yesterday with the Democratic caucus And uh, Steny Hoyer from the state of Maryland, who was our majority leader, he said of of John Lewis that he was the most Christ-like person he has ever known. And, you know, a lot of times when you hear members of Congress talk, you kind of think, oh, it was kind of, you know, there was a little hyperbole in that or a little exaggeration in that. But after Leader Hoyer said that, I started thinking, and it's like, I believe that John Lewis— Literally is the most Christ-like person I have ever known in my life, you know. So to me, the fact that I have been able to serve in Congress alongside a legend like John Lewis and to see him day in and day out treat everybody with kindness and how he stood up for the underdog at every single turn, to me that is. I guess I will say that that was something that I witnessed that um, was truly in service of others every single day that I
0: saw him. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Sherry. And thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Ken.
0: Thanks again to Sherry Bustos for joining me. You can find her on Twitter at @RepSherry. Rep Sherry. Next week on Burn the Boats, I'm talking to Tim Ryan, representative for Ohio's 13th congressional district. We talk politics about Trump and Ohio and about Tim's current reelection campaign. But we also talk about something a little more positive, and that's mindfulness, which he considers key to his success as a leader and politician. And we wanna hear from you. Do you practice mindfulness? And if so, what does it do for you? If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to Evergreen Executive Producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeLoya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions.
2: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On conflicted,